Well, take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Going to go back and pick up our series from the Gospel of Luke about the greatest person that ever lived, meaning Jesus, of course. And if you've ever studied the childhood years of the great Bible characters, the men and women of the Bible, you're going to discover there's just not much there. I mean, just try and look at the childhood years of the great people of the Bible, you, you won't find much. Cain and Abel were born, the next thing you know, they're at each other's throats, and Cain kills Abel. We first encounter Noah as an adult, who found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Abraham was old enough to be a grandfather by the time we meet him. Esau and Jacob were born as twins. Esau loved to, hit, to, to hunt, and Jacob preferred the comforts of home, and their story begins with them as adults. We meet Joseph at age 17, which that's our Sunday school lesson today. We're given just a few glimpses into the childhoods of Moses and Samuel and David and not much more for Samson and Elijah and Elisha and Esther, Ruth, Solomon, Job, Daniel, Jonah, the rest of the prophets. In the New Testament, we read a single sentence on the entire life of John the Baptist, his early life, who apparently spent most of his childhood out in the desert, in the wilderness. Nothing about Barnabas, nothing about Silas. We learn Timothy had a godly mother and grandmother, but nothing about his father or his own journey to manhood. Even the early years of Saul of Tarsus remain a mystery. We know nothing about his childhood days in Tarsus and very little about his days in Jerusalem as he studied under Gamaliel. So anything we think we know about the childhoods of all these Bible people doesn't come from the Bible. It comes from our own imaginations. And while the Gospels don't tell us all we'd like to know about the childhood of Jesus, we actually have more information about his early years than any other person in the Bible. And what we learn about him is priceless. And so today we again return to our study of the Gospel of Luke, picking up in Luke chapter 2, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 39. And as we look at these verses about the childhood years of Jesus, I just want you to realize that you're being told more about him and his life than anybody else in the Bible, which is really how it, how it should be, right? Because he's unlike anybody else in the Bible. And that's why we're studying the life of the greatest person that ever lived. So in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 39, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. And the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And his parents used to go to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover, and when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem. And his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan, went a day's journey. And they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. 
And it came about that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? And they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. And he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. There's a number of things I think we can notice from this passage. One of the first is just where Jesus lived, where he lived. And and it varies depending upon what time in his life we're talking about. But I need to tell you that when you get to verse 39, between verses 38 and 39, we didn't read verse 38, but in between those two verses, there's a lot that happens. And as is so often the case in the Bible, we're not given all of the events, we're not given all the activities or all the things that happened in a particular passage, especially in a particular chapter. And that's why we have to use the entire Bible to understand what it's talking about. And so we know that there was a lot that happened between verse 38 and verse 39. You remember they'd come to the temple, they'd had Jesus circumcised at eight days of age, And then later on, they came to perform the sacrifices concerning Mary's purification after having a child and and things like that. And so they had paid the five-shekel redemption fee for Jesus. And after that, they offered the sacrifice of two turtle doves or two young pigeons. And after that, they had an experience with Simeon, who prophesied about Jesus, as well as Anna at the temple before they returned to Nazareth in Galilee, which is verse 39. But between verse 38 and verse 39, a lot happened. And you may ask, well, how do we know what happened? Well, we go to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, verses 9 through 23. And that helps fill in the blanks for us. Now, I'm not going to read Matthew's account to you this morning, but let me just tell you what happened. Number one, the wise men came. That's right. And I preached about that there close to Christmas time. But if you've ever wondered where the wise men fit in the story, here's where they fit in. Matthew 2, verse 11. The wise men came and visited them where? In the house in Bethlehem. Uh, They didn't come to the manger. They weren't in the stable. They weren't in a cave at that time, whatever. They came to the house where they were staying. So Jesus... After being born and laid in a manger, now they are in a house. And the wise men brought with them those three gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Gold, a gift for royalty, a gift fit for a king. Frankincense, which was used in the worship of deity, in the worship of God. Myrrh, for his humanity, was a burial ointment. Jesus did come to die. And so these wise men brought gifts that turn out to really be a blessing, as we'll see here in a moment. But they came to see the child in the house. Now, secondly, another thing that happened between verses 38 and 39 is that they fled to Egypt. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. 
an angel of the Lord came and spoke to Joseph, told him to take Jesus and Mary and flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you, because Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. And we know that that's exactly what happened. Not too long after the wise men left Jerusalem to go find Jesus, and remember they're following the star, and the star came and, and stayed above the house where the child was, okay, Herod had told the wise men, when you found the child, come back and tell me so I can come and worship him too. Well, we know Herod's motive. He wanted to kill the child. And when the wise men didn't return to Herod, Herod sent out an edict to slaughter all of the male children around Jerusalem and Bethlehem and that surrounding area, two years of age and younger, hoping to wipe out this new threat to his throne. And so Joseph and Mary and the child had fled to Egypt. We don't know what Joseph and Mary did with the gifts that they received from the wise men, but I think it's safe to assume that they used what they gave them to finance their trip to Egypt. Especially that gold would have come in handy, okay? The trip to Egypt would have been about 75 miles to the border, and they probably traveled quite a ways on beyond that just to be safe. And they would have used the gifts that the wise men brought to finance their trip there. Now a third thing that happened after Herod died is that they returned to Nazareth in Matthew 2 verses 19 through 23. So their stay in Egypt was really just a matter of a few months. But that whole trip, Matthew 2 verse 15 tells us, was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Hosea out of Egypt, I called my son. So when Joseph and Mary returned to, to the land, coming back from Egypt, maybe they wanted to go back to Bethlehem in the area of Judea instead of going back to Nazareth where they had come from. But they quickly realized that the cruelty of Herod's son, Archelaus, who was now in charge, his cruelty surpassed even that of his father. Josephus, the early Jewish historian, said Archelaus began his reign with the murder of 3,000 citizens as if he had a mind to offer so many bloody sacrifices to God for his government. So he was an insane ruler too. It really didn't matter where they went. There was evil in the realms of government. And as a result, Joseph and Mary went back to Nazareth in Galilee. So Jesus was living in a house in Bethlehem, then living in Egypt, and now he's living in Nazareth. And Nazareth, again, was no great place to stay. It's not even mentioned in the pages of the Old Testament. It was a place where the Romans maintained a garrison of troops. One commentator said, and I quote, they returned to their original home in Nazareth of Galilee, ruled by the slightly less insane Herod Antipas. So it didn't matter where they went, no matter where they looked in the realms of political government, those who were in charge were evil. They were nuts. And here's the point. Jesus was not raised in a monastery. He wasn't raised apart from the world. He was just raised in a very earthy village full of Roman soldiers and raw sin. That's where he grew up. 
So verse 39 says, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. But there was a lot that happened between verse 38 and 39. And now you know the rest of the story, <laughs> as Paul Harvey would say. And you see how the pieces of the story fit together. Now, having said that, there are two verses that serve as bookends for the incident that we're going to look at this morning. This incident took place at the temple. Those two verses are verse 40 and verse 52. Verse 40 says, The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Verse 52 says, And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And in between those two bookends, between those two verses, we have the only account in the life of Jesus between his birth and his baptism. So it's pretty important. And so we see, first of all, where Jesus lived. But notice, secondly, what Jesus loved and what his parents loved, what was important to them. In verse 41, his parents used to go to Jerusalem when? How often? Every year at the Feast of the Passover. Now, I think there's a lot in that verse. It tells us at least three significant things. Number one, that this probably wouldn't have been Jesus' first time to go to Jerusalem. I mean, if his parents went there every year for this feast, this was something his parents did. It, it would have been a three- or four-day journey from, from Nazareth in Galilee where they lived down to Jerusalem. They would have traveled in a caravan with several families. Why? Because it was safer that way. It would have provided less of a temptation for thieves and robbers to attack a large caravan of people. So, first of all, this wouldn't have been Jesus' first time to go to Jerusalem. But secondly, his parents were passionately devoted to doing what God said to do. Now, how do we know that? Well, in the Jewish law, only the men were required to go to the three feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Only the Jewish men were required to go to those. But Mary evidently went every time that Joseph went. Passover feast was followed by a seven-day festival called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So you have Passover and then a seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread. That would last a total of eight days. The Bible says they stayed until when? You get to answer, I ask a question. How long did they stay? The full number of days, yeah, until it was over. They didn't cut out early, okay. No, they, they went and they stayed till the end, which speaks, I think, even more to us about their devotion to the things of God. How devoted are you to the things of God? When it comes to worshiping the Lord here on the Lord's Day, do you arrive on time? Do you take it all in? Do you stay till it's over? Joseph and Mary did. Every year they went to the Passover feast, passionately devoted to the things of God and to doing what God says to do. We need to be known for the same thing, folks. And a third thing here. This would have been a very important Passover for Jesus. 
Why? Because he's 12 years of age. At age 13, everything changes. At age 13, Jewish boys become accountable for the law of God. It's a transition marked by a ceremony known as the Bar Mishnah, or Son of the Law, or Son of the Covenant. And because of that, the Mishnah suggests that fathers should exercise their boys in the observance of the Passover one or two years before they come of age. This was Jesus' last Passover before he becomes of age. And so it would be very important to Jesus. He would learn what was supposed to be done. He would learn what his responsibilities would be. So it's a very important Passover for Jesus. And I wonder what was going through Jesus' mind as they approached Jerusalem. The Bible doesn't tell us, but wouldn't you like to know? I mean, the insights this this young Jesus had, what was going through his mind as they approached Jerusalem? One commentator said this, and I quote, his thoughts must have been mixed. Here was a city that Abraham had visited thousands of years earlier, a city where David had reigned, a city that murdered the prophets, a city that one day would crucify him, and crowning Mount Moriah, dominating everything else was the temple. Tens of thousands of people could find room within its courts. The Lord's eyes would constantly be drawn to it. He called it my father's house, although in fact it was being built by the Herods, end quote. Now again, Jesus, I believe, would have been to Jerusalem prior to this time, but this time was different because he stays. He stayed. Verse 43 says, Joseph and Mary headed home with the large caravan they came with, and Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. And his parents had no idea. And you may think, now, come on, how's that possible? How could parents not know that their child wasn't, wasn't going back with them? Well, you know how that's possible. You get enough people together in multiple places, and you don't know who's with who, and you just assume everyone's there, and... So you take off and go, and someone gets left behind because they were in the restroom when you left, all right? Or whatever. You know how it can happen. It happened to to Bonnie and me with Ryan. Ryan was born in 1982. We moved into this facility, into this auditorium in January of 1986. And so either later on that year or the following year in 87, whenever, Ryan's, you know, about five years old, we lived where Jordan and Sarah Venema lived. We had purchased that house, a building trades house, back then. And so we just lived north of Jerry's dad back then. And I would come up early by myself, get the building opened, and I would sit in my office and go through my sermon one last time. And then Bonnie would come up a little later and bring Ryan. Jamie wasn't born until 86. And so on one particular Sunday, uh, Bonnie goes out, gets in the car, and heads up to the house. And... Everything's quiet, and I'm about the last one out, and okay, and thinking I'm the last one out, I go out and go down to the house. When I walk in, she says, where's Ryan? And I said, you didn't bring him? No. So I come back up to the church, thinking, all right, is he in there? Is he scared? Is he crying or what? You know where he was? Right back there in the kitchen on a chair cleaning up the communion trays with Huck Satterwhite. Sam Satterway, but everybody called him Huck, okay. And he, he just loved to do that with Sam, okay. And 
it can happen, all right? It can happen. And in those days, they would travel with large caravans, several families, lots of animals. Would have been impossible to have known everyone that was there. So in verse 44, they assume he's with the group somewhere in the caravan. As they head to Nazareth, they travel an entire day not knowing that he wasn't with them. And finally, maybe it's time for dinner and everyone's settling down in their clans and families and the kids are getting back with their parents and all of a sudden Joseph says to Mary, where's Jesus? Well, isn't he with you? Well, well, no, I I thought he was with you. And she said, well, he's probably with his friends or whatever. All right, I'm just reading into the text, speculating. And they start looking around. They can't find him. And they come to the realization he's not here. And we've got to go back. They had traveled a whole day's journey before they realized he wasn't with them. Now they have to travel a whole day's journey back. In fact, verse 46 said it came about after three days they found him in the temple. Sitting in there with the teachers listening to a Bible study. And in verse 46, it tells us Jesus didn't just listen, that he was also asking some questions. And verse 47 tells us that all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And you need to know the meaning of that Greek word amazed in this particular instance because our English word amazed just doesn't do it justice. I think it's quite an understatement. Another commentator stated, and I quote, Luke describes the religious leaders as amazed, which literally means to remove oneself, to lose one's wits, to go out of one's mind, to be terrified out of one's wits. We would say they were beside themselves. So amazed barely does justice to the utter astonishment and excitement that Israel's most gifted teachers experienced upon meeting this 12-year-old boy named Jesus. They reacted as we might if we were to hear a five-year-old give a lecture on quantum gravity and string theory and then banter about with the leading minds on particle physics. The Greek terms describe the boy theologian cleverly making logical connections that should have been far beyond any 12-year-old mind. End of quote. So everyone was amazed, stunned by Jesus, except his parents. They were not amused. In verse 48, Mary said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. Now, all of you that have been parents, let's be honest, if you were in Joseph and Mary's place, is that what you would have said? I doubt it. I think it would have been more like this. Where in the world have you been? Right? You're lucky to be alive. In fact, when we get you home, you may not be. Right? I mean, yeah. They were relieved, but probably upset at the same time. And if you've ever lost a child for any period of time, maybe in the mall or wherever, you know that feeling. John MacArthur said, Jesus staying behind was not an act of disobedience to his parents, nor was it irresponsibility on their part. They had never before known him to do anything except what they expected him to do. He was responsible, obedient, sensitive, thoughtful, in every way sinlessly perfect, This act, however, marked a transition. Jesus was moving from responsibility to his earthly parents to responsibility to God. He had not intentionally defied or hurt his parents. 
What he had done was to make evident the necessary break that was to come between him and his earthly family. As he would later say, Jesus had come down from heaven not to do his own will, but the will of his Father who sent him. And although that break would not be fully realized for another 18 years, it is made evident here. End quote. I think verse 49 is also insightful. Jesus responds to his mother and says, Why is it you were looking for me? Now that seems like a dumb question, right? He knows why they were looking for him. But did you not know I had to be in my father's house? Now what had Mary just said? Your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. But Joseph wasn't Jesus' father, right? And Jesus responds by saying, you should have known that I would have been in my father's house. I just find that interesting. But there's something else maybe going on here because this phrase, my father's house, can also be translated, my father's business. In fact, I think the New King James Version puts it that way. The point is, if they had really known his divine identity and his divine purpose on the earth, they would have known that there was no other place for him to be than in the temple, and that that would have been the logical place for them to have looked. So let me ask you a question. If the people that know you the best were looking for you, where would they look? Where would they just automatically go to? Walmart? Hey, there have been times we could add a church service in Walmart with the number of people that, you know, sure. So the store, shopping, or a ball game, or a restaurant, a bar, a movie theater, your job, where would people go if they were looking for you? Jesus is kind of saying, should have known I would have been here. Now verse 50 says they didn't understand what he said. They didn't grasp it. You see, his, his father's business was not that of a carpenter, but the business of the cross. Because from this point forward, his path led surely and directly to a cruel cross just outside those city walls. And both Mary and Joseph failed to understand what he was saying. Now stop and think about that. His parents were both first-hand witnesses to angelic announcements. They were both first-hand witnesses to shell-shocked shepherds who gave a, a spectacular testimony. They were both first-hand witnesses to the worship of the wise men who came from the east with gifts that nobody else got. They were first-hand witnesses to prophetic announcements from Simeon and Anna that, that you could not miss, and they still didn't get it. So we see where he lived, and we see what was important to him, what he loved. But notice, lastly, what he learned. In verse 51, it tells us he went down with them to Nazareth and was in subjection to them. Chuck Swindoll said, if any one person in the world had the maturity and the moral right to rule his own home, it was Jesus at 12 years of age. But nevertheless, 
he continued in subjection to Joseph and Mary. You see, the time for Jesus to leave his parents' authority hadn't yet come, so he went back with them to Nazareth, and his relationship to them was one of submission. He submitted to them. Any of you that have been in the military know what submission's all about, because you have to, and if you don't, you'll pay the consequences in some way. There'll be some sort of discipline or some sort of punishment. You have to submit when you're in the military. There's no other option. But that's not what submission means in Ephesians 5.21. In Ephesians 5.21 it says to submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. And it means you're not submitting because you have to. You're submitting because you want to. And that makes all the difference in the world. And that's the way Jesus submitted to Joseph and Mary. And in verse 51 it says, Mary treasured all these things in her heart. You remember, I think maybe this was the first fulfillment of Simeon's warning. Earlier in this chapter, Simeon would said that a sword would perish Mary's soul. I think it's already starting to happen. She has a lot to think about. Her son was also going to be her savior. She's in the process of turning her parental authority over him to him having divine authority over her. The sword was coming. Later on in Luke chapter 8, Mary and Jesus' brothers go and the people say, your mother and brothers are outside. And Jesus said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? They are those who hear the word of God and do it. The sword was coming. And ultimately, it took him to the cross. But verse 52 tells us all we know about the 18 years that Jesus lived in Nazareth from age 12 to age 30 when he went out to be baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist. Here's all the Bible says. Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And I don't know what happened in those 18 years. The Bible doesn't tell us. The Bible does say that he was tempted in every way that we're tempted yet was without sin. What would have been like growing up with your dad as a carpenter? Did Jesus help in the carpenter shop? Probably. You think Jesus ever hit his thumb with a hammer? Probably. You think Jesus ever uh, built a chair for someone's house and took it to them and then they cheated him by not paying him all the money that was due him? Probably. Bible says he experienced everything that we experience, except he never sinned. But he grew in wisdom, he grew in stature, which means he grew up physically, okay? As he got older, his body matured, he, he matured more physically, he grew up in that way. And then Luke says he grew in favor with God and man, which means not only that he pleased God, but that he was pleasing to people. People liked him, and some even loved him. And you know that's not the case necessarily today because there are so many people that hate him. And when we get further in the book of Luke where Jesus comes to be baptized by John the Baptist, his father is going to speak from heaven and say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, well pleased. So the question this morning is what's your relationship with Jesus? What is your relationship to Jesus? And when it comes to Jesus, are you just a fan or are you really a follower? 
You see, Jesus isn't 12 years old anymore. He's not living someplace in subjection to humans. And Jesus will never be in subjection to you or me or any other human again. He's Lord. He's the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we are to be in submission to Him. He's the one who, when He begins that ministry at age 30, He lived His whole life, a sinless life, so He could be the perfect sacrifice to save you from your sins. Dying on the cross of Calvary to do that. So what's your relationship with Jesus? And what's the next step that you need to take in that relationship? If he died for you, would you be willing to live for him? I pray that you would. So if you have decisions that you want to make today, you meet me down front as we stand and sing. Whether to become a follower of Jesus for the first time, whether to complete the obedience to the gospel by repenting and confessing and being baptized into Christ and living a life of faithfulness. If you've already done that, maybe the next step is joining with us here at New Hope if you're looking for a home church. Or maybe you've already done that, but you're looking for a place to serve. We can help you with that, but take the next step, whatever that means for you, as we stand and sing.